chapter 2 this evening. And uh, just a reminder, uh, of course, this is what's known in many circles as Passion Week. And so this uh, Friday from uh, noon until 1 o'clock, well, guys, come on forward. Uh, I'll get to you in just a moment. But we'll be enjoying our Good Friday service this Friday, uh, noon to 1 p.m., kind of setting the tone for uh, Resurrection Sunday and that celebration of Jesus' resurrection. And so uh, all of you are invited. It's a family meeting, kids, everybody comes into the same room. A very, very sweet time of, of reflecting upon the Lord and praising Him. If you're here tonight and you're, uh, you don't have a Bible, you'll be fairly lost this evening without a Bible. And uh, men are coming up the aisles right now. Just wave to them, and they'll put a Bible in your hand. And uh, please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, this evening. When we come into uh, chapter 2, it begins with, and again, he, that is Jesus, entered Capernaum after some days. Uh, we remember that Mark, as he writes his gospel, he is kind of the um, get right to the point. He's the action kind of guy. Uh, immediately is a word that he uses over and over again in his gospel because he can't wait to get on to the next thing after he's uh, revealed uh, one thing or another to us about Jesus or his teaching. But Jesus' ministry was broken up pretty evenly, his three-and-a-half-year public ministry, into three one-year sections. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the first year was known as the year of obscurity, where he was largely anonymous. And then the second year is known as the year of popularity, where the crowds that began to follow him were absolutely massive. And then the third year is known as the year of opposition. And uh, in uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, he basically jumps the entire, skips the entire first year, the year of obscurity, and kind of is this characteristic of him by the Spirit of God, gets on with, you know, the ministry and, and all of its action and, and dynamic and all. And so Jesus is at the height of his popularity here and, and uh, as it's being recorded uh, and as he records it for us uh, here in chapter 2. Jesus comes to Capernaum, a city on the Sea of Galilee. He did make Jesus following his rejection uh, by uh, his hometown of Nazareth. He made the city of Capernaum his headquarters for his entire ministry, not just his northern Israel ministry, but his entire three-and-a-half-year uh, ministry. He did not make Jerusalem the, the center of that for reasons we'll talk about another time. But he comes now back to Capernaum, uh, and it was heard that he was in a particular house there in, in the city. And uh, again, his popularity is so great that uh, to find out where he is is going to produce an immediate uh, crowd uh, for healing, for teaching, just to see him, just to make contact with him. I understand the excitement altogether uh, in my own uh, heart. I can't wait to see him. I can't wait to look into his eyes. My only, the only thing I want is to then hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. But one day I will see him. But I understand this, this kind of excitement. And immediately as he's in that house, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, 
and uh, nor even the door. The entire house becomes absolutely filled, jammed with people. Picture a phone booth where college students are, you know, jamming 12 or 16 people in there. The house is absolutely full, outside of any windows that are within the house, out the doorway as far as anybody could hear his voice or catch a sight of him at this particular house. It is an absolute wall uh, of people. And notice what Jesus did, and He preached the Word to them. Now, Mark focuses a lot upon the miracles of Jesus, and of course, they're wonderful. Uh, but his ministry wasn't uh, one-dimensional. He taught uh, people also. I'm all for a miracle. I need miracles in my life, and I want them. Uh, but uh, even as we're here tonight, uh, drawing near to worship the Lord in song, but also to receive from His Word, we have a craving to hear from God and from God's Word. And so, uh, he, it was this wonderful mix of, uh, of the Word of God and then signs and wonders confirming the Word in people's lives. And so, He taught the Word to them. Uh, and if you have a copy of that Bible study, I'll give you 50 bucks for it, uh, if you ever see it on eBay or anywhere. Imagine uh, listening with your own ears, Jesus expounding the law and the prophets. Wow. Uh, what a priceless environment to be in. And then, uh, they, then they came to Him, and it's four men who are carrying uh, a friend who is a paralytic. He has no use of, of either of, of his legs, and they're carrying him uh, probably on some kind of a, uh, a slats of boards that have been uh, put together, or maybe just on a, like a carpet, and they're each holding each corner of the carpet or some kind of sturdy fabric or or, or even some kind of a blanket. But they come, they've heard that Jesus is there, and so they're going to bring their friend now to be impacted by Jesus. And when they could come, they, they, they could not come near Him. I mean, they had no hope of even getting near the door, let alone uh, gaining Jesus' attention because of the crowd, uh, industrious as they were. This is, a, this is some sanctified boldness right here. They climbed up on the roof, and they uncovered the roof right above. They estimated right above where Jesus was sitting and teaching in the room, and they took the roof apart. And so we're told when they had broken through, this probably indicates that the roof was a tile roof. They moved the tile through. Uh, dangerous to have a home fellowship with Jesus in those days as a homeowner. If you were in a condo, the HOA would have a fit over uh, this kind of thing. And so they then proceeded to let the bed down on which the paralytic was, uh, was lying. And they lowered him right in the middle of the Bible study, right down in front of Jesus. This is the the kind of desperation that they felt concerning their friend. You just, we, we have to bring you to him. He's going to take care uh, of you. And, and it's a beautiful picture. Jesus is very impacted by their faith. He notices it, as we'll see in just a moment. But, you know, for our, uh, one of the great lessons of the passages, for, for our lives, so often, you know, we think that every time we run into somebody or we've got a family member or a friend or something that, and we, we want everybody to be saved in, in our acquaintances and in our close friends and, and certainly within our family, that somehow, you know, we have to take them all the way and the first time that we share the gospel with them, you know, elaborate on everything from Genesis to Revelation and then, and then hope they're going to get saved. But our job is to introduce people to Jesus and to let them know about Him, 
and to let them know about uh, His offer of salvation, and then to leave them with Jesus. And Jesus can involve us however He wants further in that, but the pressure isn't on us. If we will just introduce them to Jesus, Jesus will take it the rest of the way. Didn't He do that in your life? They they estimate that the average person will not accept the gospel. Uh, They will accept the gospel, on average, those who do, the seventh time they hear it. So uh, very few people hear it for the first time and immediately say, yes, I want to pray the sinner's prayer right now. Thankful when that happens. But but the, the point is, is that if we'll bring them to Jesus, Jesus knows how to take it the rest of the way. So now this Bible study has been uh, wonderfully interrupted. Jesus, uh, I don't know what He was teaching, but He's going to teach something different uh, right now. I wouldn't be surprised if whatever He was teaching in the Law and the Prophets went right along with what was, was happening here as He would in, in, anticipate it. So this paralytic is laid down in front of Him, uh, and the scene is in our mind. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, that word son is a very interesting uh, word to take note of. The rest of the sentence is very, very powerful. Um, when, when I was growing up as a boy all the way through my childhood, I never had one man, including my father, ever call me son. Not one time. Didn't hear it. Not once in my lifetime. Would have loved to have heard it. And I don't mention that in order to uh, receive any kind of pity or anything like that. My heavenly father has called me son enough since. Uh, and he calls us sons and daughters to make up for whatever was lacking, you know, prior to this. But to stop and to think about what, even before he says anything to uh, this man, this, uh, this paralytic, what that word must have meant to him. It immediately revealed the attitude and the heart of Jesus toward him. He had to know, this is, I'm not in trouble here. This is going to be good news. He doesn't have to say, listen, it wasn't my idea. My four friends, they took the roof apart and then interrupted your Bible study. He's completely put at ease, and the greatest way you can be put at ease from the mouth of Jesus, and that is to be called uh, son. And he said, son, your sins are forgiven you. And this is interesting. Because I remember when I heard Pastor Chuck, the first time I ever heard this taught, uh, he, he taught it, and uh, he, he, he creates this great image as he does so. And uh, here are these four guys, they lower their friend down in front of Jesus. Jesus declares to the, to the man, his sons are forgiven, and Chuck said that they're thinking to themselves, no, not the forgiveness bit, we want a healing here. And, uh, and, and you can imagine, they, they might have almost protested it in their heart. And yet Jesus realized that the single greatest need, even in a, in a paralytic's life, the single greatest need, whatever, whatever, however flawed or broken we may be physically, our greatest need is forgiveness from God. And that's what he extends to the, the man first. He'll get to the other need, uh, but the forgiveness of sin was the greatest thing that this man needed, and he pronounced it upon him. I think that sometimes we can go through life as Christians, and we read about the book of Acts, and we read in the Gospels, and, uh, and so many of us in this room, we live with um, infirmity. Uh, uh, we'd, uh, we'd love to be told to rise up, take our bed, and walk out of the place, and yet it hasn't happened in our life. And we can wonder, you know, I mean, does God love me? Is God what? Or can come here. The, the fact that He has forgiven us of our sins 
Whatever he adds to that in, in his wisdom and his will for our life, that is absolute gravy. Uh, we, can, we can pinch ourselves all the way between here and heaven and then into heaven over the fact that our sins have been forgiven. That is the greatest miracle that can happen in a human being's life, more than even being able to have our legs healed and carry our lame bed out of the room. It's wonderful to sit here this evening as Christians and, and to have our sins uh, forgiven. And some of the scribes, they were sitting there, these are the uh, Jewish religious leaders among them, and they're sitting in the room. They've uh, wedged themselves into a good seat somewhere uh, in the room. And, and then when Jesus said this, son, your sins be, are forgiven, uh, they reasoned something within their heart. They began to think something derogatorily concerning Jesus. And they said, why does this man, speaking of Jesus, speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so they accused Jesus of, of committing a blasphemy by declaring this man's sins to be forgiven when everybody knows that only God has the authority to uh, forgive sins. And so they considered it blasphemy, and they considered it blasphemy because they did not believe Jesus to be divine, to be God, to be the Son of God. But Jesus was not committing blasphemy because He was and He is God. And as God, He has the authority uh, to uh, forgive sin. They were absolutely right in who can forgive sins but God alone. Only God can do that. But what they were wrong in was their assessment uh, of Jesus. And they were wrong in their assessment of Jesus because they... <clears throat> simply did not want to believe what he was telling them uh, about him himself. This was inconceivable to them. They, they simply didn't want to believe it uh, about him at all. And so this is what's going on inside of their minds, inside of their heart. But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, so Jesus understands what it is that uh, they are, uh, their musings related to the situation, and he's now going to address the question that they haven't articulated. He's going to address the question that's going on in their heart. They've not verbalized it, but he knows that it's there. Uh, it is interesting. It's one of my favorite uh, verses in this regard in the Old Testament. The Bible says that God knows our thoughts when they're afar off. You know, God knows what, He knows what I'm going to think before I think it, before I ever formulate it. I think I'm so smart. I think if I come up with some kind of an argument against Him that's going to checkmate Him, He knew what I was going to think before I ever thought it. It makes, it makes winning an argument with God absolutely impossible. We are at such a disadvantage uh, on that. But who would want to win an argument with God in their right mind? And, and so here is this, uh, he recognizes what they're thinking, and then he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your heart? He said, which is easier, uh, to, uh, easier to say to the paralytic, your, sons are forgiven, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed, and walk? And it's, a, it's an interesting question. Uh, what, uh, what is the, what's the easier thing uh, uh, for a person uh, to uh, 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 say in that situation? 
Well, the harder thing is to be in Jesus' shoes, but not to be divine and say to a person, rise up and take your bed and get out of here. Because it, it would, you, it would, you would be immediately exposed for whether you have had the power to do that and the authority to do that. So you would never, you would never do that. The easiest thing to do is to say your sins are forgiven you because who can tell whether they were actually forgiven or not? Because there's no, there's no visible uh, evidence of that kind of thing. And so the easiest thing uh, to do uh, and to say to the paralytic would be to say your sins are forgiven you. And then he goes on and he says to them, but that you may know that the Son of Man, that's a, that's, a, that, that's a reference to Messiah, and Messiah as the Son of God, and he's ascribing deity to himself. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, in, a, in essence, I'll not only say that his sins are forgiven, but I'll do the other thing that you would never say. And I say to you, he said to the paralytic, uh, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and he went out in the presence of them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And if you were in that meeting, that's what you'd walk away with. I've never seen anything like this uh, before at all in, in my whole life. And of course, uh, you know, nobody had. And so here is this beautiful uh, demonstration of Jesus in, in, this, uh, in this paralytic's uh, uh, life. I think that um, you know, when, in order to demonstrate, as Jesus does here, that uh, the man's sins had really been forgiven, the thing that nobody can see, uh, he, he gave them something they could see, and that was a changed and a transformed life. And it is the greatest evidence of God's authority and, and what He does in forgiving us of our sins. And the evidence that God has the authority, that Jesus has the authority to forgive us of our sins, the evidence that is then presented to an unbelieving world, even within our family or our schools or our workplace or among our friends, the evidence that He gives them that He has the authority to forgive sins is to present to them, following the forgiveness of sins, a changed life and a transformed life. And we may not have our legs healed the way the paralytic was, but God has changed our lives, each one of our lives as Christians, in a way that is equally dramatic as we would think about uh, our, our conversion uh, story. And so this beautiful, beautiful uh, picture of this healing and, and, uh, and all of it we recognize from our own life. Praise the Lord for the forgiveness of sins. And then he went out again by the sea. Capernaum sits on the Sea of Galilee. And as he goes out to the seashore there, all of the multitude came to him. And again, he taught them. He's ministering the Word as much as doing the miracles. And as he passed by and making his way here and there and in all of this, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to Levi, follow me. And so he arose and followed him. And so this passage records for us Jesus' call of a tax collector by the name of Levi to become one of his disciples or one of his followers. This Levi, we know him better as Matthew 
who will become one of Jesus' 12 apostles, and he will also be used by the Holy Spirit for the writing of, of the gospel uh, according to uh, Matthew. And uh, when you read the gospel according to Matthew, as we studied it uh, previous to this gospel, it's filled with uh, the repeated phrase uh, that it might be fulfilled, that it might be fulfilled, that it might be fulfilled, that it might be fulfilled. And the author of the book of, of Matthew, Matthew himself by the Spirit of God, he's continually quoting verses from the Old Testament and how Jesus' life and ministry was a fulfillment of the Old Testament portrait of the Messiah who was to come. This Levi, this Matthew, was something, uh, was very, very deep in the Scriptures. His name is an interesting one, Levi, because what it tells us is that he was a member of the tribe of Levi, which is the, the Levitical tribe. And, and Levi, in terms of his lineage, uh, he was being groomed all of his life to, and no doubt the reason be, uh, behind him knowing the Scriptures so well. He was being groomed to be, as he would reach adult age, he was being groomed to become a priest and to offer the sacrifices and all that was involved in being a priest there in the city of Jerusalem. This was his uh, entire uh, heritage. This is how he was going to spend uh, his entire life, and, and evidently uh, something very much uh, changed and uh, all of that in his life. I, I personally don't think that it's inconceivable that when little Levi or Matthew uh, finally raised up and trained to be a priest, now finally being able to graduate to come to the city of Jerusalem and to begin his uh, worship and his service to the Lord, that when he ultimately comes into the city of Jerusalem and he sees the absolute hypocrisy of the Jewish religious leaders, he sees how the law and the prophets have been turned into a money-making, money-grubbing machine. This is religious theft that was going on by the Jewish religious leaders that claimed to represent the God of the Old Testament. And when Levi took one look at this, given his conscience, he looked at it and he said, I don't want anything to do with it. And I don't doubt that he uh, walked away, just shut down, checked out, got away from it. And I think he probably thought something like, well, listen, if this is all about power, and this is all about hypocrisy, and this is all about making money, then I'm not going to be a hypocrite uh, like you religious leaders are doing here with the law and the prophets. I'm, going, I'm not going to hide behind religion to get uh, rich, uh, and I'm not going to be a power monger here. I'm going to go out and I'm going to be an honest thief. I'm going to go become a, a tax collector. And he was so sickened by what he saw, he took up an occupation that was despised by every Jew and despised certainly by the religious leaders. And I don't think it was accidental. I think it was he was going to poke the religious institution in the eye and say, I dare any of you come and condemn me as a tax collector, given what I know that you are doing to people in the name of God that is nothing like God. And so he takes this office of tax collector, a very corrupt occupation in those days, especially for a Jew. 
and the Romans would, uh, would uh, appoint these people tax collectors, and they were appointed to raise a certain amount of tax money each year for the Romans. But whatever they could gouge the population uh, uh, with beyond that then became their own take. It, it, it attracted the worst kind of people. It was the worst kind of corruption. And, and Matthew takes and looks and says, I can become a tax collector with a, with a clear conscience then I could be a priest in Jerusalem with what they're doing to the name of God there. And he walks away from the entirety of it. And then one day, up in the north, up in Capernaum, on the Sea of Galilee, as far as you could get away from Jerusalem and still remain in Israel, he comes into contact with Jesus. And he hears his teaching, and he find, sees what he's doing, and as he looks at this Jesus, he realizes this is the fulfillment of all of those scriptures that I was steeped in and raised in, and this is someone I can follow. And I think one of the great lessons of Levi is that if you or I in the remainder of our pilgrimage, uh, but certainly if it's already happened to you in your life, there are so many people and so many religious institutions that uh, have arisen up and they claim to represent God, they claim to represent Christianity, they even claim to represent Jesus, and they are nothing like Him. And when you get raised in that kind of an environment, or you come out of pure paganism, and one day you go to church and you get pulled uh, into a church and you begin the early days of your Christian life, and then this is the curtain that gets pulled up one day, and you see this is what this is all about. This isn't about me. This isn't about God. This isn't about loving God with all of my heart, my mind, my soul, and my strength, and loving my neighbor as myself, and you walk away from it. This stuff goes on all of the time everywhere, and you can't and I can't let this stumble us in terms of becoming a Christian and continuing to walk with the Lord as a Christian. One of my favorite titles of Jesus in all of the Bible is found in the book of Revelation where it describes him as the faithful and true witness. It's singular. He is the singular, the only faithful and true witness of God. And the importance, not just, not merely as a pagan, but the importance for us as Christians in the middle of a fair amount of corruption that still goes on in Christ's name, to keep our eyes on him and take our eyes off of all of the rest of it and to follow him realizing that he is entirely different than how so often he is represented. I think so many people get turned off because they assume that what they have seen in a church or a religious organization that claims to be Christian, that it is accurately representing God and representing Christ. And that is not necessarily uh, the truth. And I think when Levi looks and he sees Jesus, what Jesus does essentially with his life is what he does in every one of our lives. He knocks out of Levi's hands every excuse for not following him 
that was once in Levi's hands for continuing to live a self-willed life as, as a, a tax collector. And I'm convinced that nobody was happier to have those excuses knocked out of his hands than, uh, than uh, Levi uh, him, himself. And so Jesus commands him now to, to follow me, and he arose and he followed him. And it happened as he was dining at Levi's house. Levi, uh, he, gets, he becomes a disciple of Jesus, and uh, he's got a bunch of friends that, again, way down deep in his heart. I think this guy had a love for God that was, it was never, ever uh, completely put out in his cynicism and, 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 and all. And then when he sees Jesus, he wants every one of his tax collectors and every other peer of a tax collector, which in any city was always the worst cities, uh, sinners within the city. And he, he calls for a luncheon or a dinner, and he invites all of these people now to a come and meet Jesus uh, dinner. He probably couldn't get them to come to, hey, uh, come to a Bible study, so he offers them food, and they'll come uh, for that. And so these tax collectors and the sinners, they came, and they sat together with Jesus and, and, and his disciples. The disciples were there as well. And these sinners and these tax collectors, they were many, and they followed him. Uh, and, and so I, I think that I don't know what I, – I hesitate to put a – kind of um, a description of what a sinner and a tax collector would be, you know, in our current culture. I mean, it's a pretty big uh, picture of people. But in any community that anyone would live in, it's the worst of the worst, this group. Uh, and, and where they've been ostracized by the culture largely, they can only find friends among themselves, and they develop this ungodly subculture. So whatever you want to attach to that, whether they're millionaires or, uh, or whatever it might be, uh, or drug addicts, but, uh, and, but that doesn't limit the, the, the definitions. Uh, 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 it's not limited to that. And so here they are, all of them, and they've come together, and, and they're eating, and, and many of them as a result of the contact, they uh, began to follow uh, Jesus every, uh, as well. And so everybody, of course, is very happy with this. Uh, look at this, how people are changing and getting saved and coming into contact with God, and, and uh, it was a happy ending. But everybody wasn't happy. Uh, the religious leaders were not happy. And so when the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, well, listen, if he's going to eat with anyone in the world, who else is he going to eat with? He's the only one that isn't a tax collector and a sinner. Everyone he ate with was a sinner. And so they saw him eating with these tax collectors and sinners, and they said to his disciples, they weren't even man enough to go to Jesus on it. They try and work a side door, just weasels, and uh, come to the disciples. And, and they, they said to him, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and, and sinners? And the idea behind what they're, what they're saying here, and it's, and it's a prevailing attitude among religious people today, and, and it's in every one of our hearts as Christians, and we have to be careful that it's always going to be there in germ form, that it never becomes more than germ form in our life. And the idea that they're communicating here, and they're, they're not going to take Jesus on, they're going to try and, and, and uh, introduce this leaven into Jesus' disciples. And the idea is holy people. 
people that are serious about God, if you're really serious about God, you do not hang around these kind of people. And that's what uh, they're communicating here. Well, Jesus understands what they're doing here, and he heard uh, what was being done, and he said to them, here's his response, those who are well, they have no need of a physician, uh, but, those, uh, but instead those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The fact of the matter is there are no righteous ones. He calls everyone to repentance. But he, he comes to call people to repentance who know that they're sinners, that knows uh, they're, they're broken. And these people knew they were, and he was calling them to, to repentance. You notice he says, that not the, uh, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In that meeting that was going on in that lunch, Jesus was at that meal with the intention of being redemptive in his, his presence there. He wasn't there to, you know, knock back a few brewskis or whatever it might be with him and help everybody, you know, understand God's a, a slob like they are or uh, cool by the current definitions of cool. He came into that meeting in order to be an influence for God and to redeem these people in, in that environment. And so, uh, so he comes in there and, uh, and, uh, and, and brings his disciples in there that they might experience the, 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 same, uh, the same thing. I mean, it, 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 in order to save sinners, at some point, uh, you have to get close enough to sinners uh, that, that you can talk to them and so they can hear. And as Jesus uses the, the a physician as an illustration, the idea is that when a doctor enters a sick room, it isn't because they're excited about sickness. Oh, good, I get to be around sickness, and I get to be around uh, disease. They enter into a, a sick environment. They enter into this kind of, uh, of an environment because they know they have the potential to heal the patient by drawing close to them. And in the same way, Jesus is saying that he attended the feast, not because he loved sin or that he loved sick, diseased, spiritual condition of mankind or, or the, the diseased, spiritual condition of the people that were in the feast. He went in there because he knew he had the potential to heal them by doing so. In the same way that a doctor has to get close to a patient in order to diagnose them and then, and then to share the cure with them. A Savior has to get close to sinners in order to in order to share the diagnosis and the cure spiritually with them as well. And so he tells them this essentially is why he uh, went uh, to the feast. Why else would a physician be among the sick? And why should a Savior, uh, uh, where should a Savior be but in, in, in the midst of sinners? And uh, Matthew, I mean, he couldn't, it, it, it is a beautiful picture here, he couldn't invite a single sinner into his house. It pulled all of the so-called scum out of the city of Capernaum and bring them in that city, and there was no single individual or a whole household of those individuals that could have kept Jesus from coming in there and then bringing his disciples with them as well in, in order to, to, to reach them, his concern for them, and uh, willing to meet with them. I think that uh, this 
speak something very, very important to us uh, as Christians, and I think we all struggle with it, and maybe struggle's too strong of a word, but we all, we all uh, deal with it. And uh, that is, we know that the Word of God has called us to remain separated from the world. Uh, we are not to engage in the sin, in, in sin, or the sin of the world, or the ways of the world, or the environments and temptations of the world. There is a, a separation that is to be maintained. And, and so th- that's very, very important. God uh, calls us to that. But then it, where it gets a little hard for us to understand is how do we maintain relationship or at least contact with people within our family or friends or, or, or whoever they, they might be who are very much deeply entrenched in sin, but how do we, how do we establish a, a redemptive influence in their life without maintaining a relationship with them on, on some level? And and here, I, I, one of the things that I think is important for us to see as Christians, as we see it in Jesus, but then in the disciples that are with Him there, that for us as Christians, there's no need for us to be uneasy uh, in, uh, in any environment of sinners. There simply isn't. Uh, Jesus wasn't, the disciples uh, uh, weren't at all. No matter how messy they are, no matter how addicted they are, no matter how, uh, what warts they have or whatever. And I, and I think it's important, and I'm, I'll just speak to myself for the next five minutes, but you can listen in. And we must never, ever expect a Christian, to, a non-Christian, to act like a Christian. It is simply impossible. You and I could not do it before becoming a Christian, and we, we, we can never put that expectation on a non-Christian either. I think one of the things that some, some of us, especially if we're of the ilk in our core like these religious leaders, that somehow we feel that it's a compromise to enter into that kind of an environment or in any environment that we don't have complete control over because we think that because we're present in this particular environment where there are so many sinners present that somehow uh, it is going to be a reflection upon us. In other words, the only environment we can really go into that really honors God is an environment that is so completely sanctified and pure that nobody could misunderstand our presence uh, in the room. And that's what the religious leaders were, were doing in, in all of this. And, they, and we are not the policemen of the world. And what other people do in the rooms we find ourselves in, in the environments that we find ourselves in, it is not a reflection on us. And to understand that, I think as Christians we can be generally very un, uncomfortable, even in family reunions or whatever, where the whole family is, is non-Christian and, and uh, crazy. And, and somehow, you know, we've got to uh, either stay away from the environment in, in, entirely or we feel responsible for God for everyone that said a swear word or did something stupid at, at uh, Thanksgiving dinner. That's not our problem. Uh, our issue is to see, Lord, where do you want us to go? Do you want me to go to Thanksgiving dinner or not? And then to go in there and be redemptive in my influence and to just simply be a Christian in that environment. Uh, 
It is not my responsibility to change everybody's mind or to change their lives. It's my responsibility for them to see a Christian in this environment and to see the beauty of a Christian life lived out uh, before them. And it sets us at ease. I think we put so much pressure upon ourselves in these kind of, of environments that Jesus never felt himself, and he certainly didn't put upon the disciples. The religious leaders tried to put it on them, but Jesus uh, never, uh, never did that. I think one of the things that happens uh, is that when we, uh, initially, when we become Christians, we're new Christians, we, is that we become very deeply connected with other Christians and very, very deeply connected with, uh, with a local church. And all of that is very good, and all of that is very, very uh, important. It is important for many of us, probably all of us, but certainly the overwhelming majority, that when we became Christians, there were relationships we had to end. We had to terminate them. We had to walk away from them because at that point in our Christian life, we could not handle the temptation or the aggravation or the problems that came with that relationship. And we had to close the door on those relationships in order to then draw close to God. I'm not saying that that isn't a part of virtually every Christian's life in, in, uh, in, in, in our growth, in, in, in our own uh, in our own sanctification, to leave behind relationships that are, are uh, unhealthy and sinful relationships so we can now become focused completely on becoming deeply grounded in, in our relationship uh, with God. And uh, some of those relationships uh, it, it can, uh, might need to be gone for good for the rest of our life. They're never to be reintroduced back in, in, into our life. But it is important for us to understand as Christians that once we are grounded and, and, and we're deep in our relationship with the Lord and our understanding of the Scriptures, that we should never be afraid of any environment that we would then be put in, that we're going to be stumbled or our faith is going to be overturned or something like that. And, and so the importance after we've walked with the Lord for a while, typically what happens is we get going as a Christian and then all of our relationships in life become Christian relationships. And then after a number of years, we look around and we say, I have virtually no uh, friendship or relationship outside uh, of other Christians. And that's a time to stop and to assess it with the Lord and to say, uh, and to look and, and, and to uh, begin to seek the Lord about whether this is exactly what He wants, uh, you know, for our life. And and I think very often he will uh, cause us to look for opportunities to be in contact with those who are not yet Christians, because it's to be like Jesus, as it is declare, declared here. I'm not talking about hanging out in drug dens. I'm not talking about hanging out in bars uh, and, and uh, missionary dating or anything like that. But just to look in the whole big wide world at people that don't know the Lord and an opportunity to uh, have a relationship, however long or short with them, that they might see Christ in our lives and that we might be able uh, to share the gospel with them. And that's what's happening here in this, in this in, in environment. Jesus went redemptive influence and, and presence, and, and that's all God asks us to do as well, is just be who we are uh, as a Christian. Otherwise, we will establish 
a false separation with the world that looks nothing like Jesus. I'll tell you why I, I think is at the core of a lot of legalism in this, in this uh, uh, vein. And, and why I think that the, the church, certainly in the United States, I don't know about the church anywhere else in, in the world, but I think one of the reasons that uh, church leaders have established uh, uh, legalism as a means of keeping God's people uh, sanctified, and most often the legalism translates into a false separation from the world is a lack of confidence on the part of the leaders that the congregation is strong enough in their faith to stand in these kind of environments and to be a witness for the Lord. And there's all kinds of Christians. I mean, you can't, don't, you know, don't look down on leaders for that, that kind of an assessment. They see so many Christians fall away from their faith uh, when somebody just uh, blows at them, and they, they go over like a feather. Uh, so leaders get concerned about whether Christians can really handle themselves in these environments. And then when they see so many that don't do well in the environment, then they put all these laws on that, if not overtly, then at least subtly say, keep away from these people and keep away from these environments. This is what holy people uh, do. But it's a confession of, of, of uh, uh, it's not a sign of weakness in the congregation. It's not a sign of confidence of the strength of, of an individual Christian. It's always a confession of what we consider to be the weakness of Christians and the weakness of, of the body uh, of Christ. And, and so I think that's the origin of much of these rules that establish a false separation between us and the world that looks nothing like Christ. And it's worth assessing uh, within, within our own our own lives. The answer to all of this, and us to have maintain a redemptive contact with the lost in our life, the solution to this is not to establish a false separation. The solution to this is for each of us to grow so deep in our relationship with the Lord and our knowledge of the Word of God that we can look and say, by the grace of God, I think he could put me in any environment like this, and I, I would be a blessing in that environment. And not only would my faith not be threatened, but I think I would be uh, a, 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 a light that would encourage people and, and, and desire to know more about the God that I know and I love uh, as well. Now then, is, is all of this is, is going on and all of this is, Jesus is moving along and he calls Levi uh, here and the events. He continues to make his way around the Sea of Galilee and the disciples of John and the Pharisees, they were fasting. And when, uh, then they came to Jesus and they said to him, so at least they're going straight to Jesus at this point. We've got to commend them where it's commendable. Uh, and so the disciples of John and the Pharisees, uh, they fasted. Let me stop there just for a moment. Uh, John the Baptist, highly, uh, just one of the heroes of the Bible, but he was not a New Testament saint. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. We don't go to John the Baptist for New Testament uh, revelation and experience. He died. He was beheaded before Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. 
So he lived, and his disciples did as well, very much dominated by an Old Testament way of looking at things. The Pharisees, and they're going to complain to Jesus about the issue of fasting, the Pharisees were famous for their fasting. Uh, They fasted, I think it was every Monday and every Thursday of, of, of every week, a Pharisee fasted. Whether there was a reason to fast or not, that was beside the point. It was a ritual. It was a, it was a religious discipline that they in, engaged in. It did not need to be based in some kind of a, a spiritual reality within their life. So this is, this is where fasting, uh, the, the kind of place that it had within a Pharisee and within, within John's life and, and the disciples of John. And so they, they see that uh, the, the uh, come to Jesus and they ask him, why do the disciples of, of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And, and so look at what we're doing. We're serious about God and we're fasting and your disciples, uh, they, they don't fast uh, at all. And Jesus' response uh, to them was this. He said, can the friends of the bridegroom, the imagery is of a wedding, can the friends of the bridegroom, here is Jesus, he's the bridegroom, he's getting married, he's he's wooing the bride of Christ, Christians in the world uh, at that time and through to today, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? Nobody fasts at a wedding. Uh, You just look and say, boy, the bride's parents sure are cheap, wouldn't even put up any Ritz crackers or anything here, trying to save money here. No, nobody fasts at a wedding, and certainly not in those days. And so can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? That's not a a time uh, for fasting. And so here you have this scene that Jesus is in the middle of, and I mean, you've got multitudes of people who are being saved. He's being crowded in every environment he goes, uh, that, that he's in, and it's basically, he's asking the people, What do you want me to mourn here? What do you want me to fast over here? You're not not attending a funeral at this point in my ministry. You're attending a wedding. You want me to fast? It's not appropriate for, for what's going on and what God is doing through me and in the world. And then he went on and he says, as long as they have uh, the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. This is illogical, what you're doing. You're trying, to, you're trying to foist an activity that is a good activity, but it needs to be based in reality. And you're trying to make this a badge of spirituality disconnected from reality, and you've done that in your own life, and now you're trying to do it to my disciples. And Jesus stands up against it. But he says, the days will come when the bridegroom uh, will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And on the three days and three nights between the day that Jesus died on the cross and was buried, and he rose again on that third day, the disciples did fast because then it was appropriate at the time of of the death uh, of, of Jesus. And so, the, the speaking to them in, in, in this way, it needs to be connected to, to a reality. It needs to be, mean something uh, to us uh, here. And then uh, Jesus' second response to them in verses 21 and 22, uh, and, and he makes the same point uh, through two common illustrations of, uh, of that day. 
And he uses the, the illustration of, 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 of patching a, a, a garment with an unshrunk cloth. He said, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. That is a garment that's been washed over and over again and is no longer shrinking. Or else if you do patch a new fabric that's never been washed and shrunk and you put that new piece on that old garment that, uh, that isn't going to shrink, then uh, the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. So you picture a shirt like this or a robe that they've got. And you've got a hole in your, in your shirt. And uh, this shirt has been washed a million times. It's, it's not going to shrink anymore. And you go and you get this, you find a match for whatever the fabric is, and here's this brand new cloth that's never been washed. This is way before pre-shrunk clothing, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. For those of you who are a little younger, this is a recent development in, in human history. And, uh, but if you did that and you, you put a, something that was uh, uh, as yet unshrunk on that and then washed it, of course that fabric is going to, is going to shrink now and you're going to get a pucker in your shirt. Yes, I did. I said pucker. You're going to get a pucker in your shirt. And it's, now it's going to be worse than walking around with a hole in your shirt. And, and uh, I think that uh, it, it, in what Jesus is communicating to them is that the old covenant and the new covenant, they're incompatible. He's telling them, you're trying to impose Old Testament on what I am bringing into existence as the very Son of God, and they are incompatible with one another in the way that a piece of unshrunk cloth is incompatible with, with clothing that has already done all of its shrinking. I think that most of us, at least those of us who are a little bit older, all of us who are a little bit older, we wish there was pre-shrunk jeans when we were younger, but we all remember, I think, buying our blue jeans and uh, Levi's probably for the most part, and you had to buy them two inches longer in the length than you actually wanted, and an inch wider in the waist uh, than you actually wanted, and then ultimately it would shrink kind of in, uh, in, into that place. And because you, you gauged how much the fabric was going to, to ultimately shrink. I remember going to Israel one time in the early years, and uh, somehow I'd gone into the dining room at one of the hotels, and I, I think I had left my uh, jacket there. And when I came back to find it, it was gone, and uh, there was a little bit of a cold uh, snap in, in uh, Jerusalem, and I needed to find something that I could, I could stay warm with. And uh, there on Ben Yehuda Street, they had this uh, Levi store. Trust me, it was not a Levi store. It just said Levi up there. They were talking about the tribe of Levi. They were not talking about Levi clothes. And uh, so I go in there, and I'm thinking I'm getting this Levi quality sweatshirt, you know, and, uh, um, and, and, and I, I wore it the rest of the trip, and I brought it home and then washed it one time and uh, was then able to give it to any eight-year-old in, in the neighborhood at that particular point. That's how much it shrunk. I remember a guy named, by the name of Rick, and Rick Vogan, God bless him. I look forward to seeing him in heaven someday. What a saint. What a saint. What he walked through and went through hardship in his life, and very difficult life, and walked with joy uh, with the Lord. These are the people, these are the names that get forgotten, uh, and, and, and they're, they're, the, they're the amazing names in, in the body of Christ. 
But Rick, uh, he, he dealt with a lot, and physically is, he had a, a disease that was uh, slowly uh, damaging him in a big way. And, but he, he took on a trip to Israel, and, um, and, and uh, Rick wanted to have a, a souvenir from every site that we went to, and he decided that souvenir was going to be a T-shirt. And I said, Rick, you don't buy a T-shirt. Buy a wooden camel. Uh, buy a wooden anything. It won't shrink. These shirts, you're going you're you're to put them in the laundry, and they're going to shrink down to nothing, you know. And, but this was important to Rick, and so I, I, let, it, I let it go. I, uh, we, we all live our lives. So he had like 16 T-shirts or something from all the sites that we went to. I think we got to Jerusalem, and he put them in to be washed at the hotel that we finally got to, and they washed with hot water in those hotels, and they came back. And not only were they like toddler size, but all of the decals had come off as well. And I never, I never read this passage without thinking about Rick and thinking about that same that same story. Incompatible. You can't, and that's what Jesus is telling them. Don't try and add your legalism to my new covenant. I mean, legalism ruins everything. And when you watch in the life of Jesus how much he stood up against legalism and having it gain even the slightest foothold into Christianity, and that's what he's doing here. Fasting is a good thing, but, but you don't even take a good thing done under a false motivation and make this a standard for spirituality and what I am uh, doing here. And then, and so Jesus is basically telling them, and telling us as well, that he didn't come into the world to give us a, a patched up a robe of righteousness, but to give us a new one. And then he went on, he spoke about wineskins, and he said, no one uh, puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wi wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined, but the new wine must be put uh, into new wineskins. And, and so in, the, in those days when you would have wine, they didn't have bottling companies and, you know, the things that we have like with Gallo or whoever, whatever companies of beverages and, and glass the way that we do. And so when they would uh, make wine and they would then ferment the wine, they would put the wine inside of the hide of either a, a goat skin or a sheep skin. And as the wine would ferment, it would then stretch the skin uh, and, uh, and then they would pour the wine out of that at that point. But if they then took and put new wine into that stretched uh, skin, it had already been stretched to its max. It would now uh, run the risk of splitting the skin and then tearing the skin and losing the wine uh, as well. And so Jesus is just another way uh, of, of telling them that uh, in the same way you would never do this with wine, uh, what you're trying to foist upon me and upon my disciples, it is incompatible with the new covenant that, that I am establishing. And I think as we close here tonight in that, that particular place in, in, in verse 22 is just, I think, what Jesus is saying here in, in, in a way that I could put it in, in, in a way that would be memorable for us and, and is, a, is a take home for our own Christian life. And to, and to understand it. 
Christianity cannot be improved. It cannot be improved in any way from what it actually is and what Jesus wants it to be and what He died on the cross and was buried and rose again on the third day to produce. It cannot be improved by the Old Testament. It can't be improved by even man-made legalism attached to fasting. It cannot be improved upon even by something as good as fasting being added to it as a, as a mark of, of a spirituality. All legalism ever does with Christianity, all it ever does with Christianity is it mars this brand new thing that Jesus desired to bring into the human condition in His incarnation and in His life, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. Don't add the Sabbath to Christianity. Don't add any of the law of the Old Testament, all bringing Christians back under the externals and the rituals of the Old Testament. And this is going on all of the time, even within our community, in the Hebrew roots movement that never seems to go away, where Christians get this boneheaded idea that the most accurate representation of what Christianity ought to be is interpreted out of the Old Testament. And nothing is further from the truth. It is a type and a picture and speaks of Christ, but it has nothing to teach us about this new thing that Jesus has brought into existence in, in terms of Christianity. It exists to help us appreciate the glory of the new thing that He has, he has uh, created. And, and this idea of bringing people back under, uh, you know, the, the law and back under the Sabbath and back under the, the keeping of these, uh, of these uh, uh, feasts and ordinances, not as a remembrance, but as a way of, uh, of pleasing God. There's no problem with it being a remembrance, but as a way of, of doing something to please God and earning something from God, it, it, it's terribly wrong. And the problem is, is it's always portrayed that if you're really serious about God, then this is what uh, you need to do. And you know the, the person that's really the most vulnerable to legalism is the person who's really serious about God and is looking for other ways beyond the Scriptures to prove it. And we're vulnerable to it. And Jesus makes this righteous stand against it because it, 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 it cannot add anything to what we have in a personal relationship with, with God and our single focus and vision being placed upon Him. Christianity is perfect as it is. Don't try to improve it with legalism or we will ruin it. Again, legalism ruins everything. Now, let me close with this. When I talk about legalism, I'm not talking about obedience to God's commandments. Obedience to God's commandments, that's, that's a given. That's something that every Christian or every one of us ought to be very sober about. That's not legalism. That's called obedience. Legalism is our rules that people come up with and add them to the commandments of God 
And usually a legalist feels like you're not doing Christianity unless you're suffering in a relationship with God. And so when God says do X, they then think, well, if X is good, then 3X is even better. And that's what they end up, up, do, uh, uh, end up doing on, uh, on things. Legalism is coming under man-made laws, man-made rules, man-made commandments, and then keeping those things as a way of trying to please God. That is something entirely different from obedience to God's commandments. I'm not, I would never want anybody to leave and say, yes, that guy, he preached that night, and he just said, we don't have to take anything serious in terms of obedience to God's commandments. All of that is legalism, nothing of the sort. We're talking about two entirely different things. And with that, we'll stop tonight, and we'll pick things up in that, verse 23, uh, Lord willing, next time when we come together. Let's stand together now, and we'll pray.